Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Well, good morning. We're in Mark chapter 14, people. And I'll tell you, it's amazing uh, because I've had some time now to look ahead and see where we're we're going. Because we only have chapter 14, 15, and 16 left. And uh, as we enter chapter 14, we come to the passion of Christ. We come to his, the passion of Christ is the death and the resurrection of Christ. And this is, of course, the dramatic peak in the book of Mark that he's been building toward this entire time and that the gospels build toward each one. And as you'll see, you'll begin to notice that the events accelerate significantly because a lot has to happen. We're two days away from Jesus's death. It's Wednesday and he's going to die on Friday. That means he has to get arrested. He has to be tried in two different courts. He's got to be crucified, buried and rise from the dead. By the end of the weekend. So you're going to see this is a problem. This is a problem. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the apex of redemptive history. It's the high point uh, of the book. It's the high point of life. It's the high point of all reality. It's the high point of spirituality, of hope. Everything hinges upon the events that we're going to be looking at. We have just come out of chapter 13. And 13 raises a couple of questions. If you were with us, you'll remember. Number one, what are we going to do without a temple? How are we going to make sacrifices? How are we going to celebrate uh, the Passover and and the feasts? What are are we going to do without a temple? And we'll see here that Christ becomes our Passover. He becomes the new temple. He becomes the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Passover. He becomes that for us. Remember at the beginning of the book, because what all this recalls is, is John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you're about to see that Lamb sacrificed in these chapters. Now, not only does it Are we forced to ask, well, what are we going to do without a temple? But the other question uh, with the application of chapter 13 is, how are we going to watch? What does it mean to watch? How and when does the watching for his return start? How are we to be faithful followers to the end? Because remember, we said real faith lasts to the end. Well, here's what we're going to learn. The watching starts now. It starts as we watch Jesus go to the cross and rise from the dead. So that means the events of the passion, the death and resurrection of Christ, are the decisive and initial acts of the eschatological drama. I mean, once Jesus dies and rises, the next thing is the return. So that what Mark is saying is the end starts now. Watch it. You're going to see it unfold. Keep your eyes on it. Remember, the disciples are told to watch. But what do they do? Sleep. 
So they're told in 13 to watch for the return. They're told in 14 to 16 to watch as Jesus dies, but they can't do it. And I'll tell you, if you can't see what he's doing in his death and resurrection, then you'll never watch and see what he's doing in his return. So the only people who will live faithfully to endure to the end are those who see the beauty and the value in Jesus' death and resurrection. If you don't see that, you'll miss it. So Mark is going to express the value and the beauty of Jesus in dollar signs, something we all get. He's going to put a monetary value out there. It's interesting. He's going to put a price tag on it. If you look at this text, and I'm going to show you, this is really small. It's not really designed so much for you to read it. Uh, But that's the whole picture. You know, I love to show you the whole passage so that you can see it. And uh, Mark is going to employ here, really, uh, a technique he's used throughout this book that we've seen many times. It's the sandwich technique. He's going to tell one story. So this is one story here. And then he's going to insert a story in here. Something's happening uh, in the room. And it's probably this microphone at some level. So he's going to insert another story here. All right. And I want you to notice two things about something in each story that's going to sort of help you understand what the stories are about. Because remember, always the inserted story tells the most important point about the whole story. And you can see. Here's a price tag, 300 silver coins, and then money. So you can see that the issue here is going to be about value and cost. How much is it worth to you? All of the events that we're going to see in chapter 14 through 16 for Mark start out with that question. Can you see its value or not? What will you price it at? I can almost hear an auctioneer in the back. Just asking that question. I'm sorry I did that for you. I do it to my boys all the time because there's always a need to... Anytime we're assessing the cost of things. Now, I regret that. (laughs) Now, so what you have is, how much did Judas get for Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. So you got a 10 times factor going on here. You got a 30 versus 300 factor. So you can see there's two ends of the spectrum. Someone completely devalues him. And someone completely values him. That's what the numbers, as we're going to see, sort of represent. Because if you don't see the value of Jesus, uh, if you don't see his beauty, uh, then it's, it's going to be really hard to be a faithful follower. Because what it will ultimately mean, as we'll see, is it must mean that you value other things. And for a disciple to value anything above Jesus is going to be trouble. It's going to spell trouble for you. Not only is it going to spell trouble, we're going to see it's a deadly mistake. It's a deadly mistake. When I was in college, I read a book by Tony Campolo. Uh, 
It was called, Who Switched the Price Tags? He tells the story up front that on Halloween night when he was a kid living in a town in Philadelphia, that uh, he and a buddy decided they would go into the five and dime store. You know, how many of you have never heard of a five and dime store? Yeah, it's a five and dime, basically like a little Walgreens, except a uh, sort of a different version of that. But something like it. A little drugstore, sold lots of different things, trinkets. And you go into this five and dime store, and uh, they decided to break in, so they broke in. And what they did was, rather than steal everything, they switched the price tags on everything on this Halloween night. And so that next morning, everybody came in, and he tells in the book uh, that um, people were buying radios for five cents, and they were buying bobby pins for five dollars. And it's an amazing story. And he goes on to describe that. And he says, uh, he makes the point that the devil loves to break into your lives and switch the price tags on everything. He says, he'll make you devalue the things that mean the most. And then he'll make the things that have no lasting value at all seem precious and fulfilling. And that's kind of what we're getting at here. So what's the difference between 30 and 300? What do the numbers really mean? Well, let's look at that. We have a lot to cover in these verses. So let's get through them. So the story begins like this. Here's the first story. Two days before the Passover and feast and the feast of the unleavened bread, the chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, so there won't be a riot among the people. So we got two days before Passover. Mark gives us this little timing thing. That means it's Wednesday and, and we're heading toward Friday. And so there's so much irony here because here they're about to celebrate Passover where Israel sort of gets rescued from Egypt and they become God's redemptive people. And here at the, at the cost of a firstborn. And here now a firstborn is about to be sacrificed for them during this season, and they're completely missing it. Uh, so it's just a, in fact, they are officially rejecting Jesus here. The nation is officially rejecting Jesus at this point. And their hatred gives birth to this very, very sinister plan. Uh, they're going to arrest Jesus. They're going to do it stealthily. And they're going to kill him. But they realize they cannot do it during the feast. Well, if you can't do it at Passover, okay, by Friday, and you can't do it by the feast, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, remember, that was a week-long celebration after Passover that the, that the Israelites celebrated. And that was get all the leaven out of your house. That was a picture of since Jesus died for us, we got to get all of the, the sin and unholiness out of our lives. And so they would literally get all of the leaven out of their lives. Every nick, every, every crook and cranny, they would get everything out uh, as a picture of that. But here's the problem, and you can see it. We can't do this during this time. That means according to the enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders who are going to kill him, uh, we got to wait a week. We got to get way past all of this. There's too many people in town. 
All right? The city is packed with people. Everyone is in town for the Passover. Jesus has garnered some support from people. To try to arrest him publicly now would create a riot. And that's the last thing because Rome is watching. And the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, are so self-centered that they, they, uh, they had developed such a relationship with Rome that if they could just keep the peace, Rome did, them, did a lot for them. And so to protect that, even their hatred, they're postponing. Because they know that a riot would put their whole world in jeopardy. Well, they decide to wait. Now, in the first part of the story, that creates a problem because God needs Jesus dead by Friday. Is everybody paying attention to that? See, God needs Jesus dead by Friday. And this is the interesting thing, and it's something for you to reflect on. That Jesus doesn't just suffer at the hands of these religious leaders in Rome. He suffers at the hands of God. The whole plan has been all along for God to take the life of his own son on behalf of the world. So in the cross, more irony, you've got both of these things happening here. And I, I wish I could elaborate on this more. Uh, in the cross, you have the worst act of injustice and the greatest act of justice happening all at the same time. And that's the feel you get in the room and you just, it's just unbelievable. So what God has to do is take their very complex plan, okay? Listen to this phrase here. They were trying to find a way. That's the word seek. And in Mark, that word has been used all over and it's always designed to gain control. They're trying to seek him. They're trying to seize him stealthily do it, and then they're going to slaughter him. All four of these things. And this elaborate, complex plan can't happen the way the enemies want it to, so God has to sort of step in and make their complex scheme easy. And that's the first part of the story. Because when you get to verses 10 and 11, let's finish the first story, which happens at the beginning and the end of this paragraph. Look, then Judas... Well, thank God for Judas. At one level, you can thank him for Judas. See, because Judas is going to make the plan come together faster. Because Judas is an insider. He's, 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 got, he's got the best access to Jesus. And he gives the religious leaders an out. They're going to say, well, one of their own, one of his own came to us and told us all this stuff about him. We had to act. We had to seize him. And not only do we have to seize him, we can seize him privately now because now we know his agenda and where he'll be. Judas. And look, look what he says. Uh, they were delighted. It's almost as it's so it's just so ironic. So I don't even know what the word is. I'm not a wordsmith, by the way. If you're a guest, you'll, you'll, you'll figure that out. I'm not a wordsmith. Uh, he's delighted. They're delighted. Because they have no idea that God is operating behind the scenes. And so, they're thrilled to death. But here's the thing that's so powerful. You just, you don't expect it. You know the story, so you do. But if you're reading this little story and you hear about these enemies, the last the last person or people you would think about is one of the 12. You wouldn't do that. 
So for him to be part of the story is, to, is, is really designed to make you take a step back and go, what? One of the insiders? See, I mean, this is one of the motifs that Mark has used all along. We know the religious leaders are insiders uh, because they should know who the Messiah is, but they act like outsiders. Judas is now an insider who's going to act like an outsider. Someone you wouldn't expect to believe as an outsider. Someone you would totally expect to see it. Someone you would totally expect to get it is Judas. And he doesn't. And neither do the religious leaders. They're people who should get it and don't. It's just incredible. And so Judas, that's why Mark tells you, he's one of the twelve. Hey, do you remember? He's one of the insiders. And he went off to the chief priests to betray Jesus. So Judas, this is very important in this, in this theme here and in the overall context of the book. Judas becomes a picture of someone who doesn't make it to the end. Remember in chapter 13, you watch faithfully, you're a doorkeeper, you keep your eye on the door and you watch faithfully to the end. Judas is a defector. He's actually a prototype of defection. And he's a warning to all disciples from this day forward that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. You can grow up in the right family. You can attend the right church. You can do a lot of things. You can be really close to him. You should, you should be one of those ones who would totally get it, but you don't. And it becomes evident by your life and the fact that you don't watch to the end and the fact that you don't value what Jesus has done for you. So he becomes an outsider. He becomes literally like one of the enemies. Because notice what it says. Uh, he begins looking. It's the same word for seek. He does the same thing they do. Looking for an opportunity to betray him. It's so strange. Judas becomes just like Jesus' enemies. He's an insider who becomes an enemy. And you can see, they're thrilled by it, of course. But notice, they, were, they promised to give him money. Now, you'll see in just a moment, that they promised to give him money at Judas's own request, because that's what John 12 tells us. Remember, 30 pieces of silver is what, he's, what they negotiate. And by the way, just so you know, as it relates to this text and how important it is, 30 pieces of silver was the lowest amount you could pay for a slave. In other words, the lowest slave that you could buy cost $30 or 30, 30 pieces of silver. That means Judas paid the lowest price for what he thought was the lowliest person. And Judas had a front row seat to who Jesus was, but he never could see the value of what Jesus was doing. So that's the story. That's the story in Mark 14. But Mark is going to do something for us. He's going to insert another story in between that story. And within that story, it's designed to say, uh, that's not the end of the story. In other words, that's not the whole story. 
I just told you a story, but it's not the whole story. You need to hear the whole story. Because Jesus, and here's the reason why. Mark doesn't want you, if you only had these two verses, and you're reading through Mark, you'd think Jesus was a victim. You'd think Jesus' death was a tragedy. I mean, the religious leaders are about to kill him. He's basically just going to be martyred. And he's going to be betrayed by someone from the inside. And you could actually feel sorry for Jesus reading this. And Mark doesn't, Mark in no way wants you to view Jesus' death as a tragedy. So he's going to show it to you. He's going to show you the value of Jesus from a place you would not expect. In other words, with Judas you would have expected it and you didn't get it. And now he's going to show you the value of Jesus from someone who you wouldn't expect to get it. He's going to show you from a group of outsiders. And that's where verses 3 to 9 come in. And they're the story in the story. Now, while Jesus is in Bethany, because remember, Bethany is where he stayed outside of Jerusalem. The whole time he was going into town, into Jerusalem, he was staying in Bethany. That was sort of the headquarters. But it's outside, watch, it's outside of Jerusalem. He's staying at the house of Simon the leper. If that's not an outsider, I don't know who is. I mean, they were socially outcast. So he's geographically outside. He is socially outside because he's with a leper. Now, of course, the leper's been healed or he wouldn't have been able to throw a party. He wouldn't have been able to have a dinner. All right, he'd be living on the outskirts of town. They're reclining at a table and then a woman comes in, an unnamed woman. We don't know who she is. Mark doesn't tell you who she is. She comes with an alabaster jar of costly aromatic oil from Purnard. And after breaking open the jar, she pours it on his head. This is the scene. This is what happens. She just barges into this. So you got just geographically uh, outsiders. You got uh, socially outsiders. And then you have this unnamed woman. And Mark doesn't even name her. We know who she is. But just act like you don't know who it is. And so from this little ragtag group, literally from out of nowhere, is going to come the most exemplary act of discipleship, perhaps, in the entire book. And by the way, the most exemplary acts of sacrifice, of discipleship in the book, come from two unnamed women. Keep the other one in mind. And notice what happens. She literally barges in. And Mark is grammatically all over the place in this verse. I tried to diagram it. It's so difficult. Uh, You can do it, but it's like commentators just note the grammatical awkwardness of the way Mark presents this. It's because even grammatically as Mark writes it, he's just filled with, I don't even know how to say what's about to happen right now. This woman is about to break open a jar of what literally he writes, an alabaster jar of ointment, and then just gives these adjectives to describe it. And there's just so many and so much going on in the sentence. Mark just can't get it out of his mouth what's really happening here. Because he says it's an ointment, it's nard, it's pure, and it's expensive. And he's just all over the place trying to do it. And this is in direct contrast to Judas who's very calculated, and he's very self-centered, and he's dominated by the desire for more. In Matthew twenty-six fifteen, 
Matthew actually writes that when Judas goes to betray Jesus, he says, what are you willing to give me? So this woman is just the opposite of him. She's uncalculating. She's impulsive. She's totally free. And rather than saying, how much can I get? She says, here, take all I have. Do you see the difference? If you want to see and watch what Jesus is doing, if you see who he really is, you don't ask, what can I get? You say, what can I give in return? And so she's reckless. She's totally reckless, as we will see. And we have to ask the question, what accounts for that? Why the distinction? How does Judas miss it? Why does she see it so clearly? Well, this sort of reckless devotion always gets a typical reaction. And it's usually from insiders. And I want you to see how they respond to her. But some who were present indignantly said to one another, why, why this waste of expensive ointment? It could have been sold for more than 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor. And so they spoke angrily to her. So they, first of all, they talked to each other. And then they speak down to her. You say, who's at this dinner? Well, I'm sure it's Simon the leper and, and, and the little Simons. And maybe, I don't know who else is there. There's some other Simons. And there's probably the disciples and... Uh, but this woman who barges in, she wasn't necessarily there. Usually women didn't recline around the table. So she's not even there that we can tell. She just sort of barges in. But that means the disciples are there, at least some of them for sure. And so what happens is the insiders just look worse and worse all the time. The people at the dinner don't even recognize what this unnamed woman from the outside recognizes. And what you're seeing in their reaction is the value of her act. They're devaluing it at one level, but you're seeing the value of their act by their anger. Okay, you can only get this ointment, by the way, in Nadal in India. Okay, it was extremely rare. It's extremely expensive. 300 denarii. You know, listen, that's a year's wage. And for a woman who didn't have a husband, this would be invaluable to her because she had no earning power. She had very little earning power. If you were a single adult, a woman, in that day, okay, a widow, you had it really difficult financially. I mean, we see that all through the New Testament. It's just a cultural fact. If you had something like this in your possession, you probably didn't earn it. You probably had it handed down to you. So not only was it valuably, uh, valuable financially, it was sentimental. Yeah, heirloom. And so the disciples are saying, we see, we know the value of that. All we have to do is see it. We know it. And we could have used it. I mean, we've got a year's wage here. We could have done something really special for the poor. So the disciples basically have a better use. 
they say we could have given that to the poor. Now, is anybody in here, imagine you were sitting there, is anybody here want to argue with the disciples about something better you could do with money than give it to the poor? Does anyone in here want to argue with anybody about, oh, you gave a lot of money to the poor. That was really dumb. Anybody want to say that? Does anybody want to say that? Who do you think might argue with a person who would say that? Who's one person? (laughs) Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, you have been the champion of the poor. You've been the champion of the poor. You're sitting at a table with people who are unloved and unwanted. You've cared for the poor all along and you're going to put up the fight here? See, the disciples have have basically taken the greatest act of sacrifice or giving that you could do, and they've put it on the table. Now, that's what they've thrown into the table. And notice what Jesus does, because it's just amazing what he does. By the way, we need this question answered. The world needs this question answered. Why didn't you give that money to the poor? Especially the generation we live in now. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's actually done a good thing. And that word for good could be beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing. Turns out that it is actually a beautiful thing. She's done a very beautiful thing for me. And whatever the beautiful thing is, clearly the disciples don't see it, but the world better see it. The world better see this. And so it needs an explanation. And Jesus says, You will always have the poor with you, and you can do good for them whenever you want. You will not always have me. You're like, all right, explain that. Because it may sound at first like Jesus is dissing the poor. He's really quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11, which was a command to the Israelites in the, uh, in the Pentateuch, in the law, to always help the poor. So he's reflecting on that reality. Well, if he's not dissing the poor, what's he saying? He's saying, there's something else going on here that's very significant. And if you're not going to have me with you, what does that mean? I'm going to what? I'm going to die. And so what Jesus is doing, and he's pointing to his death. You say, how in the world does that fit in? Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. In other words, now watch. What I'm about to do is critical. It's the most critical thing, the most critical sacrificial act for all people, poor and rich alike. What I'm about to do. It's the most valuable act, and there is no moral equivalent to what I am about to do. And if you don't see the beauty and the value of Jesus' death, you'll come up with some moral superior act or attitude that makes you feel better about yourself that you can do. And you completely dismiss, actually, what Jesus does. Jesus isn't dismissing the poor. They're actually dismissing what he's about to do. Now, notice what he says in verse 8. And this will get explained. She did what she could. 
She anointed my body beforehand before burial. Another reference to his death. Now this line, she did what she could, recalls another time Jesus says that of an unnamed woman. Who was it? It was the widow, the poor widow who gave two mites. Remember what he said to her at the end of chapter 12? When was the last time you heard these concepts put together? Poor, sacrifice, and then money. For the, for the widow, it was two mites, remember? And for this woman, it's 300 denarii. You still got an unnamed woman. The poor are brought into the conversation, sacrifice, and then these details. When was the last time you ever saw that? It recalls chapter, and you know what's going on. Remember in, uh, you have chapter 12, and then you have chapter 13, and then you have 14, and in between, sandwiched, in be- 13 is sandwiched in between, the last part of it is about a widow who gives everything she has. And then chapter 14 starts with another unnamed woman who gives everything she has. It's as if Jesus is trying to show you. If you can't see the value, remember what he did in chapter 12? He identified with the widow. He identified with the poor widow. I'm like the poor widow in the temple. No one notices her, but she's about to give everything she has. That's Jesus. No one notices me. No one's valuing what I'm doing. But I'm the only one in the room giving everything I have. And both women on either side of the story. And by the way, kudos to you ladies. Because you have dominated the discipleship world. Men, we need to catch up. Jesus is basically saying two things. I'm identifying with this woman. Watch. He's identifying. He's not just identifying with a poor woman. He's identifying with a woman who's actually very wealthy here and doing something very grand and extravagant. I'm about to become poor for all of you. So, you know, the only way, the only way to come up with something greater than giving to the poor is to realize when you're giving to Jesus, you're giving to the poor. He's about to become poor for us. That's the beauty. I almost hear him say, get your head out of the cash register. I'm about to be broken open for you. I'm about to give far more than 300 denarii for you. I'm about to break the bank on your behalf what he's saying. She's anointing me for burial. I'm about to be a corpse. Can you see the value in that? And by the way, your moral superiority and your noble deeds, your giving to the poor. And we live in a world right now that's very socially minded. The generation coming up behind most of us, if you're my age or a little bit older, the generation coming up behind us, places incredible value on uh, giving and serving the poor. But here's what Jesus is saying. Be careful about your moral superiority. Be careful about finding yourself righteous. 
because you do acts of service and noble deeds. Because Jesus is saying, if I don't go to the cross at the end of the day, they're not worth anything. They're not going to save you, and they're not going to save the poor. They'll help for a little while, but ultimately they don't serve you. it doesn't serve you or anyone else. Now, that's a profound thing to hear, and like I said, the world today needs to hear it. Don't ever value something you do for God greater than what God did for you. Because if you do, you're going to be on the outside thinking you're on the inside. It's what he did for you. In other words, if you fail to see me, if you fail to value Jesus, his incredible, beautiful, costly, pure, rare, extravagant sacrifice, then all your noble deeds are useless. And look at verse 9. I tell you the truth. This just gets further expressed. I tell you the truth. Here's Jesus getting real serious, remember? We said Jesus was always serious, but when he says this, he gets really serious. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the highest praise I mean, have you heard higher praise coming out of the mouth of Jesus? I mean, Jesus has said some pretty amazing things. Because here's the question. Well, what do the poor ultimately need? And for that matter, what do the rich ultimately need? (laughs) They need the gospel. They need the gospel more than they need anything. You can help them materially, but you only help them for this world. If you give them the gospel, you help them for eternity. Do you see the difference? Jesus recognizes that. And he's not in any way saying, leaving you off the hook for helping the poor. That's not what he's doing at all. He's saying you just got to make sure that the gospel is, is front and center. Because we all need more than material things. So what the disciples called a year's wage, a waste. What would you say of Jesus? Because you almost can hear in the background Mark thinking to himself... Well, maybe some people think Jesus was a waste going to a cross. You say, who would say that? Anyone who would value some act of good deed that they do above what Jesus did is essentially saying, it was a waste for you to go to the cross. You didn't need to make that sacrifice. Let me make the sacrifice and I'll do something good to impress you. Do you see the difference? You're basically asking the same question. If you value your self-righteous deeds more than Jesus and what he did on the cross, you're essentially saying what the disciples said about that alabaster oil. Hey, Jesus. Hey, God. You just wasted your son on the cross because I can save myself. And so Jesus says, don't ever do that. Jesus essentially connects his sacrifice 
to her sacrifice right here in this gospel. And when you think about the gospel, hey, don't think about a message that you hear and then you believe it and you hope it gets you to heaven someday. That's not what Jesus is saying by memorializing this woman. By memorializing her, he's saying her sacrifice pictures my sacrifice. If you want the gospel, baby, be ready for sacrifice. You've got to accept mine and sacrifice everything you've ever believed about yourself that was good. And then in turn, you offer sacrifice back to me. That's the gospel. And if you don't get that, you didn't get the gospel. If you don't value Jesus' death and sacrifice enough, you won't sacrifice back. And that was Judas. And that's the gospel. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. So the gospel message has still got to be proclaimed when I'm done. So he's assuming resurrection here. Do you hear it? Because the gospel is going to be proclaimed. Well, what good is it if he doesn't rise from the dead? He's assuming the resurrection. Because there's a message that's going to be preached after this. And every time that message is preached, every time the gospel's heard, don't take the word sacrifice out of it. And what she just did encapsulates the gospel. I sacrificed for you. I, I was broken open for you. Now you be willing to break your life open for me. That's the gospel. And that's what, that's what she's saying. Her extravagant, reckless gift is a picture of God's extravagant, reckless gift. And she will live on because I live on. The reason she'll be memorialized is because I'm going to rise from the dead. And that sacrifice will from now on be remembered because I rose from the dead. Her sacrifice was not a waste and neither was God's sacrifice. By the way, that's how the gospel transforms you. If you're sitting here and you're going, you know, I haven't changed. I'm still the same old bum I used to be. I'm still struggling with this. I'm struggling. I'm struggling, you know, and, you're, and you just, you can't seem to get spiritual footing at all. Listen, there's no secret to the spiritual life. If you've got a spiritual hero, don't imagine for one minute he has something you don't have. You know what he has? He values what Jesus Christ did for him so much that nothing else matters to him as much as Jesus. That's the end of the day, why you'll be a godly man in your house, why you'll be a godly woman in your house, why you'll be godly at work, and why you'll make sacrifices that people around you will not understand. It's because you value Jesus. And to the degree that you do, you will sacrifice. That's the 30 versus the 300. You say, well, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle, Pete. A lot of people live in the middle. Yeah, you know, 45, 60. I give him about 60, maybe 75. Maybe I'll give him 75. Maybe I won't. I don't know. If you're living there, you missed it. And you'll be the insider who's outside, thinking you were inside, but you didn't value Jesus near enough. So, at the end of the story, you know what you got? You got a woman who's memorialized forever. And you have Judas. And you know what it was said of Judas? It was better if he had never been born. It's a deadly mistake 
to devalue what Jesus Christ has done for you. And it's deadlier still if you imagine you've done something good enough that Jesus' death wasn't necessary. So Judas, in one decisive act, because he throws the coins back, remember, and then he goes and he kills himself, which is just a graphic picture of a man who thought he got everything he wanted in the world, and, he, and it wasn't enough, but Jesus didn't look valuable to him, and so what do you end up with? Nothing. Anything you value over Jesus will ultimately end up zero for you, and it will be a costly and deadly mistake. And so what ends up happening is, the highest price that ultimately gets paid is not the woman with the 300 denarii ointment. It's Judas's life. He pays the highest price. He pays the highest price because he rejects Jesus. Will it cost you to follow Jesus? You better believe it will. Will it cost you not to? Oh, a whole lot more. You better believe it will. I was in uh, Aspen this past week. I have a friend who goes there in the summer, and every summer at the beginning of it, he lets me come and study for a little while. And I got to study for the last seven or eight days there. A wonderful time. And uh, while I was there, I was doing, uh, I was doing, uh, I went to their Aspen CrossFit. And uh, they can come out now. If you want to bring them out, I'm just going to tell the story. Because we're going to take communion real quick. We're going to do that really quick. So, uh, ushers, if you'll get ready. um, But I'll tell you this story. So I'm in Aspen, and I get to know the owner of this uh, CrossFit place. And we're chatting one day after the workout. And I noticed a guy that had been in there a couple of days. Looked about my age, but in better shape. And uh, so, but we hadn't said a word to each other. So everyone has gone now, and I'm just sitting in this gym with uh, the owner. And the fellow that I... I'm describing to you happens to walk over. We're having a great conversation about his life and and my life. And we're sharing. And, uh, this guy walks over and he's about to have a meeting with Eric, the one who runs the place. So I'm just sort of standing by and, uh, he, he says out loud to, to the two of us. So you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting CrossFit today in my last day or, you know, and so I couldn't help myself. I'm sitting there and I'm going like, why? And he said, I don't know. I have no motivation for it anymore. He was a stud. I mean, he could easily, he outdid me in everything. I'm like, what? What are you? You're, why? What do you mean you have no motivation? Look at you. And he said, uh, yeah, I have no motivation for anything. I said, what? oh, here we go. I, did, I thought we were just going to talk CrossFit, but if you want to talk everything. We can do that too. So I said, well, you got to explain that to me. And he did. He said, listen to me. I've got a great wife, great family. I live here in Aspen. I'm a doctor. I make millions a year. I'm building a home in New Mexico. I live here in Aspen. I love my job, my, my wife. I love everything. I have everything I could ever want. And I'm miserable. And nothing I do is fulfilling. And I said, well, I might as well tell you I'm a pastor and I know what you need. And he said, well, uh, I wish I could believe that was his. Oh, when he said that, 
Oh, I'm so glad he said that. And then he said, you know, I look at religion like, hey, if you grow up in a Muslim home, you're Muslim. If you grow up in a Christian home, you're Christian. If you grow up in this, you're going to be this, you're going to be this. And I said, hold on just a second, because I want to tell you something about Christianity that's completely different. And I said, Christianity bases everything on something that happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not passed down. It's not based on a teaching of Jesus. It's not based on anything but a fact of the resurrection. And Paul says, if he didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity's bunk anyway. And by the way, if he didn't rise from the dead, there's no other religion that has a God who rose from the dead. So you don't need anything if he didn't rise from the dead. And we went on this line and I got to share the gospel with him. And I could see his eyes open a little bit and we connected at the end. I had a moment. I got to hug him. And I said, I think God brought me to Aspen a little early so I could say that to you. And I just want to say this to you. While I was there, five people attempted suicide in Aspen in the, in the course of a month. Four succeeded. And I asked the fellow I was with, why? He said, well, they come here and they realize they've found everything they could want. Because I'm going to tell you, there's more money there than you'll ever see in your whole life. They realize it doesn't fulfill. And they got nothing left. You know, one of the worst things that can happen in your life is to get everything you've ever dreamed of having and it not be enough. And here I am talking to this man. I don't care if you're poor or if you're rich. You need Jesus more than anything else. And that's why what Jesus is about to do for the world is more important than anything else. And we're about to get a behind-the-scenes look of the greatest act in history for mankind. And if you've never given your life to Christ... If you don't do it today, I can't imagine what's holding you back if you don't see the value in what Jesus has done.